Hello, my name is Caitlin Akhtar and I'm the Solicitor in Charge of Indictable Appeals at Legal Aid. Hello, my name is Jonathan Pack and I'm an Indictable Solicitor at Coffs Harbour Legal Aid. Today we're going to be discussing COVID-19 pre-recorded evidence hearings. So JP, if you turned up at the District Court tomorrow and the Crown or the Judge proposed that your matter be listed for a pre-recorded evidence hearing, what would your first thought be? Um, I suppose in that situation, the, the first question to ask is always, um, is this something that the DPP have the power to ask for in my matter? Um, so that would be my initial thought. Well, I think that's a good initial thought. Um, and the answer to that really is that the pre-recorded evidence hearing provisions aren't limited to any particular type of uh, offence, but they're limited in terms of which witnesses can be um, called at a pre-recorded evidence hearing. So that definition's found in section 354 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Um, that section defines a relevant witness, so that's the witnesses that can be called at a pre-recorded evidence hearing. And a relevant witness is essentially most complainants and also any other witness that the court considers is at significantly greater risk from COVID-19. So the important thing to understand about that definition is it's a different definition to vulnerable witnesses, um, which is a term you find in other acts, and it's a different definition to the kind of witnesses that can give their evidence by AVL during a trial in other scenarios. Um, so I think the first place that you would look when you want to know the answer to that question is go and have a look at section 354 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Right, so from, from what you've said, does that also mean that they may be able to make an application for other witnesses such as a tendency witness in, in those kinds of matters? So a tendency witness is interesting if you're speaking about, for example, a tendency witness in a child sex assault matter. Um, I have heard of a couple of examples where um, a pre-recorded evidence hearing um, is proposed to be held for a tendency witness and I think um, perhaps on the kind of uh, incorrect understanding that um, they're the kind of witness who you might think about doing a pre-record um, for in for say the child sex assault pilot scheme but this is a really different set of provisions and I think that's important for people to be clear about. So. The only way in which a child uh, who's a tendency witness um, in a sex assault matter, for example, would come under these provisions about a COVID pre-recorded evidence hearing would be if that particular person is someone that the court considered was at significantly greater risk from COVID-19. Because a child tendency witness is not a complainant, because a complainant strictly defined as um, the complainant in the matters with which this accused is charged, so not a tendency witness. Right. And so, yeah, absent any particular physical health condition of that witness, um, it's likely that they wouldn't fall within that definition and, and you wouldn't be able to have a COVID pre-recorded evidence hearing for them. Okay, well, assuming uh, that it is a matter, because it does appear to be quite broad, um, that the DPP can make this application in, I guess my next thought would be, is this something that's against my client's best interests? Um, and if so, what can I do about it? I think the answer in most cases is going to be probably yes. It's probably going to be against your client's interests to have a pre-recorded uh, evidence hearing. And the reason is essentially a forensic one. Um, what 
the COVID pre-recorded evidence hearing is going to require in practical terms is that you'll end up giving away what your case is in the cross-examination of that witness to comply with the requirements of Brown and Dunn. So if that happens just in the course of a normal trial, then you're giving away your case, you know, perhaps a, a day or a couple of days or at most a couple of weeks, um, you know, before you would have got to your case, the defence case. But in this context, in a kind of pre-recorded evidence hearing scenario, you're giving away your case at a time that's maybe months or even a year before the actual trial is held. So the disadvantage to your client is really in having to give away your case at a time when there's then a, a really big gap between the pre-recorded evidence hearing and your trial. And of course, the Crown um, during that big gap could be investigating avenues that have arisen because of the um, cross-examination. They could be obtaining further evidence um, and then serving it on you. And that can obviously put you at a, a significant disadvantage as you approach the trial. Okay, so it, it sounds like something I, I'd, I'd be trying to push against. Is, is there anything or any key indicators of things that I should be looking for to try and push back against this order being made? Well, I think the most important thing um, to start with is at the time that it's first proposed um, to consider making a pre-recorded evidence hearing, um, you need to be really careful to see whether all the prerequisites have been met um, for an order to be made. So. The place that you find that is section 356 of the Criminal Procedure Act um, and there's actually a significant number of requirements that have got to be met before you even come to think about whether a pre-recorded evidence hearing um, order should be made. So there's requirements that I, I detail in the paper um, like the accused person has to have um, had legal advice and both parties have to ha have been heard but really the most significant um, uh, requirements are that all the pretrial disclosure and case management um, requirements under Division 3 of Part 3 of Chapter 3 have been complied with and that it's in the interest of justice to, do, to make the order. So when we're thinking specifically about the pretrial disclosure requirements, that seems to be from the feedback I've got so far where there's a lot of confusion. If you look at that specific division in the Criminal Procedure Act, that involves all the pretrial disclosure requirements. So um, the 142 notice that the Crown has to provide to say that they've disclosed all their evidence to you, um, the defence um, response under section 143, but also um, YD hearings also fall within that division. So we're not talking about a pre-recorded evidence hearing that's like, for example, the child sex assault pilot scheme where there's an urgency about having that evidence, you know, as soon as possible after committal. It's a situation where all of the pretrial um, disclosure requirements uh, have been complied with, but also your YDs have been held. So in other words, your trial's basically ready to run, you're ready to impanel a jury, but you can't impanel a jury because of COVID. Um, that's when you have this option of um, ordering a pre-recorded evidence hearing. So that's something that we might be able to, to point out to the court um, in terms of showing that the reality of a pre-recorded hearing may be that it doesn't actually um, shorten anything or make things happen quicker. It may well be that it cannot happen for, for a very long time. 
Yeah, that's right. I think there's two parts to it. One is to say, if you're in a situation where you know that you've got brief items outstanding or you've got a Crown Disclosure Statement but no affidavit from the police officer, you know, um, kind of uh, confirming that all the evidence has been served, um, then you're not really even at the stage where the court would be thinking about making the order. And the wording of Section 356 is quite clear. It says that the court may only make an order if all of that has been done. So um, an example I've heard is having the pre-recorded evidence hearing ordered to occur um, as part of a timetable of disclosure. So you might have the Crown case due on a particular day, the defence disclosure statement due um, a particular number of weeks after that, and then a pre-recorded evidence hearing a couple of weeks after that. Um, that an, an order like that um, really doesn't comply with Section 356 because it specifically requires that the court can only order the hearing if the disclosure has already been complied with. So what the court should be encouraged to do is um, make the timetable for disclosure, then come back and consider um, whether to make the order for a pre-recorded evidence hearing. And if you think about it, until you can be confident that you've got all of the Crown's evidence and you, you've got all of the Crown's case in the matter, um, you're not really likely to be in a position to confirm to the court whether you do need to have any voir dire hearings. So um, there would need to be more of a stage process of coming back to the court, um, having a discussion with the other side, a genuine discussion about you know, whether there's going to be arguments about the admissibility of um, various pieces of evidence, having those pre-trial hearings first and then coming to consider whether a pre-recorded evidence hearing um, is appropriate in the matter. And then when you're at that point, then you've got the interest of justice test. Just before we, we go to the test for the um, order to be made, these all sound like things that are in the regions often raised at a telephone callover before um, the telephone callover list charge. Um, are there any requirements in the Act for when the application can be made or is there any practical things that perhaps for people in the regions that we can be doing um, to bring this before the, the trial judge? So I think um, it's a really good idea for people um, operating regionally to be raising with the callover judge um, if there's any proposal to order a pre-recorded evidence hearing that in order for the court to be considering whether to make the order, in order to comply with these requirements in 356 about parties having been heard and the pre-trial disclosure being complied with and, and, and um, things of that nature, really the accused needs to be arraigned. So we know from Section 130 of the Criminal Procedure Act that the District Court's jurisdiction um, or, or the Supreme Court's jurisdiction doesn't commence um, until the accused has been arraigned. So these discussions about whether to have a pre-recorded evidence hearing and, and parties being heard on that issue, it's important that those things occur at a time after arraignment. So that might sound really obvious to people who practice in Sydney and arraignments happen as a matter of course, but in some regions we know that that's not always um, done uh, with regularity. So I would recommend that regional solicitors be raising this issue with the list judge and recommending that if there's things being considered like an order for a pre-recorded evidence hearing, that the matter be given a date to go before um, a trial judge um, in person or in the virtual meeting room and have a, a discussion about these issues, have the accused arraigned and um, have both parties, you know, sufficiently heard 
about whether it's appropriate and in the interest of justice to make a pre-recorded evidence hearing order. Okay. Um, well, assuming that the police have, um, and the DPP have complied with all dis- disclosure obligations and, and we're before the trial judge and we've been arraigned, um, what is the test for the order being made and, and what can I be doing at that point in time? So it's an interest of justice test. Um, there are some things, some guidance that's given about, you know, what to take into account in deciding to, whether to make the order. So that's in section 356, subsection 3. And those things are the wishes and the circumstances of the witness, so not the accused, and the availability of the court and other facilities needed for a pre-recorded evidence hearing. And that's obviously going to be key because there's going to have to be discussion about what facilities are available in your particular court. Um, and that's where we get into this kind of second issue or second test about um, whether it will be in the interest of justice for the court to order that your client appear by ABL during the pre-recorded evidence hearing if we're still in a situation where the accused isn't going to be brought to court in person from custody. Right, so that that's something to do with the current restrictions in terms of travel for, for accused people to attend court in person. Um, so that may be an avenue that we can explore if, if the client's unable to appear by um, in person. If they have to appear by ABL, that's a further hurdle that, that we're faced in terms of this pre-recorded hearing. That's right. And so it's a really important issue to consider because if you think about how these hearings are going to um, happen practically, if you're um, attending a court either in person or via AVL and your uh, client is attending via AVL and the witness is attending court either in person or in the AVL, you'll have to think about how are you going to get sufficiently instructed during the hearing. So what arrangements are going to be made for, for example, pausing the proceedings and allowing for a separate private you know, confidential line of contact between you and your client it's probably going to require pretty frequent breaks in the flow of the hearing. Um, it doesn't seem to me that in many cases it's going to be a particularly efficient way to conduct a hearing. Um, and if your client doesn't consent to appear by AVL, which they well might not, they might well prefer to be there in person, then the court can only order that the accused appear by AVL if the court's satisfied that it's in the interest of justice for them to appear in the AVL. So it's sort of a, a double interest of justice test. So you'd want to take the court really step by step through these tests. If you go to the Evidence Audio and Visual Links Act um, to Section 5BA, um, that will take you through the test of you know what the court's got to be satisfied of in order to order that your client appear by AVL you know kind of over their objection so if they don't consent and then talk about the practical difficulties how you see you know the hearing playing out in terms of as I said the breaks required and how you're going to contact your your client confidentially to get them to instruct you Um, there are a lot of you know difficulties in inefficiencies about that process so Um, those are the kind of things you'd want to be bringing to the court's attention. And on the other side of that, you know, it's, um, I guess, for the court to think about what benefits they see in terms of having the pre-recorded evidence hearing instead of um, having the trial. And, you know, that's not really, I guess, for you to say, but it seems that um, the closer we get to restoring the normal kind of procedures, you know, we're just a few weeks away from jury trials recommencing in some parts of the state, um, 
the less benefit I think the court might be able to see in holding these pre-recorded evidence hearings. So it'd be important for you as the defence practitioner to um, perhaps do some written submissions or at least you know take the court through these various sections and, and, and these really um, quite detailed requirements rather than um, just agree because the court seems minded to make the order, um, really take them through all the various tests and, and, and ask them to, to give reasons on each of these points because there's really a lot involved in, in making these orders. Um, and touching on those points that, that you've raised, I, I think a concern for me as a lawyer and, and something shared by many of my colleagues is the difficulty in a trial where the accused person is, is via AVL or, or isn't present um, um, at the time is access to evidence generally. Is there any special provisions um, for access to pre-recorded evidence um, for the accused person once that's occurred? Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's something that I go into a fair bit of detail in in the um, paper. In Section 357 of the Criminal Procedure Act, there are specific restrictions in place in terms of accessing that recorded evidence when you want to review it, you know, once the trial proper comes up. Um, particular types of complainants um, will mean automatically that you don't have a right to the recording of the evidence, so you don't get a copy of it. For some witnesses, you'll be able to get a copy, but for many others, you won't. Um, and that evidence will be held by the DPP and you'll need to come to an arrangement with the DPP about how you might access that. There's no guarantee to a transcript, although you can order one. Um, and so there'll be, I guess, not such an ease of obtaining that evidence. You'll need to review it, obviously, in advance of the trial and um, there'll be restrictions around what the accused could view. Um, as opposed to what you could view. Um, and obviously, if we're still in COVID-type restrictions, then it's not going to be sort of um, everybody's preference to be turning up at the DPP office. And of course, the other problem, again, if you're in a region, is if you're in a, uh, an area like you, Jonathan, where you, your DPP office is three hours away um, from where your office is, it's not exactly convenient to try and go and access that material. So those are things that you'll have to negotiate um, with the DPP. But because you know that you're going to come to that hurdle, that'll be another important aspect to raise before the judge, that the, the inefficiencies of recording somebody's evidence and then you having to try to come to an arrangement with a DPP office that's three hours away about accessing that evidence um, in advance of the trial being held. And really whether those... Um, you know, inefficiencies and disadvantages to your client could really be outweighed by um, any benefits to holding the pre-recorded evidence hearing. So, so it's really, it's an interest of justice, another uh, point towards the interest of justice not being met exactly. by a pre-recorded hearing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, well, well, assuming that um, we've ticked all of these boxes and, and the judge is willing to make the order and, and does make the order, is there anything at, at that stage that we should be advising our client about or is there any practical things that we can do to try and um, limit the damage, I guess, when it comes to recorded hearings? It's difficult because, of course, you've got your obligation to comply with the rule in Brown and Dunn, although I've got some suggestions in the paper about, um, you know, some practical things you might want to think about um, in that area. Um, 
then if you're in a situation where you've held your pre-recorded evidence hearing with whatever difficulties you've um, experienced and um, you've come to some arrangement with the DPP about accessing that material and then you're at the time of trial, if you're suddenly faced with um, you know, fresh evidence that's emerged because um, there's been some investigation following your pre-recorded evidence hearing and um, you've now got a situation where the um, the evidence has changed slightly. Um, there is uh, no specific provision in um, the new arrangements, the new pre-recorded evidence hearing arrangements to, to prohibit the admission of any further evidence. So all we've got to rely on is just that um, the sanctions in the um, Criminal Procedure Act about um, serving evidence um, on a defendant after a time that the Crown Disclosure has been complied with. But see, the problem with the wording of that section is it's only a sanction that applies um, if the um, evidence is served, um, if you fail to disclose that evidence at the time that your disclosure is required. So um, if... The fresh the, evidence that comes about as a result of questions that we ask in a, in a pre-record pre um, seems like it's likely that it may well get in and that's just something that's unfortunately a part of this process. I think that's right because it'd be difficult to convince a court that, um, that you know, the Crown's failed to serve evidence that's come, you know, as a complete surprise to them following your pre-recorded evidence hearing. And you can see from just the general case law about late served evidence that it's, it's pretty um, case by case, pretty hit and miss about whether the evidence will be excluded or not. So I've got an example in the paper of um, a murder trial where there's, you know, one of the co-accused, um, one of the accused, sorry, is giving evidence um, and gives evidence of something that's a complete surprise to the Crown. Um, overnight, they obtained some evidence sort of to rebut that accused's evidence and that was admitted. So um, there's really no kind of hard and fast protections um, or guarantees that that evidence is not going to be admissible. And so all of that makes it even more important to focus on, um, you know, th this stage of, of trying to persuade the court that it's not in the interest of justice to hold the pre-recorded evidence hearing and put your client at such a disadvantage of, you know, allowing for all of this time after you've revealed your case for the prosecutor to obtain further evidence. And no one's suggesting that they would do that, you know, as a strategy, um, but it just seems to be um, a natural consequence of the procedure. Okay. Well, um, trying to find some silver linings for our client is is something that we should always be doing as defence lawyers, I think. So do, can you think of any um, situations in which a pre-recorded hearing may be of benefit um, to our clients? I wouldn't say it's impossible um, to think of a case where a pre-recorded evidence hearing might be of benefit to your client. Um, for example, if you've got you know, a matter where you think that the complainant's going to be a particularly unimpressive witness um, and that it's, it's possible that following their evidence and their cross-examination, um, the DPP might um, decide not to proceed further with the matter and you've got a client on remand who, who's not going to be able to get a trial for another year, then, you know, it might be that that's a situation where it would be a benefit to your client. Um, but in most cases, unless you've got that kind of situation, you know, the risk of um, the DPP proceeding and obtaining, you know, um, further evidence against your client in the meantime between the um, hearing and the trial, I think would be greater than any potential advantages for most cases. Okay. Um, I suppose just quickly, if an order is made for a pre-recorded hearing, 
um, and we're concerned about the basis on which that order is made. Is there any real avenue for review or appeal of a decision for a pre-recorded hearing? I guess my view on that would be um, I don't have a decided um, kind of opinion about whether review is available. I wouldn't say for sure that it, that it is or it isn't. It's something that um, the appeals unit at Legal Aid would be happy to consider. Um, but as with most kind of appeal questions, the answer is normally that it's better to fix these things um, at, at the time and avoid them happening than to have them happen and, and try and fix it up after the fact. So um, that's why I'm, I guess, so encouraging of people to pay close attention to these sections and um, really make sure that the court's aware of um, the complexities of what's involved before they order a pre-recorded evidence hearing. So, so from my point of view, that to me sounds like something where as defence lawyers we have an obligation to be um, telling our client about the possibility of this as early as possible and, and having instructions and having a plan to deal with this um, because um, from what you've said, it's not a matter in which they're required to put on a motion or anything like that. It, it could be something that we're confronted with um, without much warning. Is that, the, is that what you're experiencing or what you're hearing? Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. And I think that's exactly right. I think it's best to come up with a plan ahead of time if you can in case it happens um, because, yeah, you're right. There isn't any kind of requirement for, for the DPP to put you on notice or um, indeed it might not even be the DPP's suggestion. It might be something that the court suggests just of their own accord and 356 makes it clear that they can do that. So I think um, just having turned your mind to it and having discussed um, the possibility with um, counsel if you have them or with the client is a really good idea. Okay, and, and throughout uh, this conversation, you've referred to uh, a, a paper. Is, is there any papers out there um, that we can access and if so, where? Uh, the public defenders have got their um, COVID site with uh, lots of material to help people with general COVID-19 related um, issues all through the criminal kind of procedure. Um, and my paper's on there. So I've got a paper specifically about pre-recorded evidence hearings on there. And my contact details are also in there if anybody wants to um, ask me any questions about it. Okay, well, thanks for giving us all of that information, Caitlin. I hope that everyone listening uh, finds that to be helpful. And as Caitlin said, um, if you've got any questions, please read a paper and get in contact with her. And um, thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Thanks very much.